My favorite Twitter account of all time is Winds of Winter Out Yet. So it's at I-S-T-W-O-W Out Yet. And every day they just type no. We're going to be checking it a lot in 2017. <laughs> yeah, we are. I just think it's so funny. You know how like some people in the morning like wake up, meditate, set their goals for the day? Sure. I wake up and check this Twitter account. It hopefully will no longer be applicable for you to follow in 2017. I mean, that's the hope. This is our first episode of the new year. Thank you for listening to Game of Bones, the show that we make together. If you've been following us for years, you know that Micah, this has been an update, I feel. I don't want to say yearly, maybe a quarterly update in the progress of our show where we talk at some points about the winds of winter and where it is. And we've got another small update, a mention from George R. R. Martin through his Not a Blog live journal. I mean, did you think that we'd be talking about it? I feel like it was 2014 and you were complaining. Yeah, I'm sure I did at some point throughout the course of the the history of the show. I complained (laughs) about the fact that we're still sitting here without the sixth book, but there's not really much that we can do. I don't want to see any more chapters released from the book. I want the actual book itself. I think we've, we've passed the point of getting sample chapters from... George R. R. Martin. And, you wouldn't uh, take a sample chapter, though, if you dropped one? No. Have you been reading them? I, I've read them, yeah. I've read all of the ones that have been put out there, and you know, I, I do go back times and read them again, but it's just, it's hard Too to- Too much of a uh, tease. Yeah. And look, uh, at the end of the day, he writes at the speed that he writes, and, and this is nothing new. I mean, I think it's just that there's pressure on him- to get these books out, particularly with respect to the show. And and I know that we've talked about that a lot too, now that we're in a point where the show has really surpassed what we know to be actual canon in, in the series. So it's it's a much different situation. And and for him, I have to think that there is some level of frustration there. He can say whatever he wants publicly and, and write what he writes in his blog, but I have a hard time believing that if I worked on this for, you know, 20, 30 years writing the story that I would want somebody to effectively tell it to the world um, in, in a television series. Like I, I just, and I know they're two separate entities. We treat them that way, but I just have a hard time. If I worked on something for that long of a period of time, I, I wouldn't want somebody else to tell your story for you. Do the big reveals. Yeah. Have you read them? Oh yeah. At Balticon last year, at the, in May, I'm trying to remember when it was, May 2016, he read a bit about Euron Greyjoy, which kind of fits into this chapter a little bit. Yeah. So, I I mean, I'll read any anything and everything, but I'm not really in any rush, honestly. I feel like we have enough to talk about. We're having enough fun as it is. I don't want to draw it out too long, and I know it's been oh, a long time, but <laughs> I'm just saying. like, You still have a whole nother book to come after that, and that's definitely not coming out before the end of the show. So <laughs> I'm just saying, take your sweet time. I'm having a good enough time. Mm-hmm. And actually, <laughs> one of those chapters has already played itself out. At least one of those chapters, I should say, has already played itself out in the show um, exactly. I'm thinking specifically of the aria chapter i definitely encourage you to to go and read them uh but george is is at i believe the the golden globes tonight i saw the game of thrones table uh so he's definitely not writing right now for those of you who are, who are wondering 
him and a number of the cast <laughs> members are out at the award show and uh, Game of Thrones is up um, for, I think it's best drama. We were recording a squadcast earlier. Micah let it slip the, the shred of hope that he had for Stranger Things. We need to explore yeah, look, this. I love Stranger Things. I, I think it's a great show, but I don't know that it, its debut season beats out um, season six from Game of Thrones, uh, just given everything that took place. And then um, Lena Headey is also up for best actress. This was the chapter for Lena Headey to act, though. This was yeah. Cersei. Mm-hmm. What, what a coincidence. I haven't brought myself to read the sample chapters from The Winds of Winter yet. I'm not sure why. I think it, it has something to do with the amount of time that we waited to do A Feast with Dragons together. And I feel like, you know, we've waited so long for other things. It would kind of be nice to see The Winds of Winter presented chronologically exactly. Mm-hmm packaged with the cover and holding it in my hands possibly with a signature i just think would complete the whole experience you have much more self-control than the rest of us well i haven't been able to stop myself from reading the forsaken or at least the parts of the forsaken that have kept me up at night the stuff that i've sort of dreaded after reading chapters like the iron captain being in that room though i gotta say having him read that chapter out loud i remember talking about it in May sometime, but that was one of my favorite experiences, hands down, just in all of my time reading this series and being involved in fandom. It was just such a cool, cool experience. So I wonder if, or I was going to say, I wonder if the recording is available online somewhere, but I'm pretty sure he made it pretty clear. Do not record this type thing. But it was so, I just had chills the whole time. It was so cool. Well, how about the content of that chapter reflecting directly on today's? Yeah, I was actually thinking about it today earlier since we started this show there hasn't been a new book right so that's pretty crazy to think about right as we as we start off another year can we read an own early can we break all the rules because we might need to heather brechtel wrote on our facebook wall this week I will give Game of Owns an own if they finish doing the whole book read before Martin finishes the sixth book and announces a date. It's possible. I thought maybe one book would be too much, but... Maybe I just have the secret hope that we'll be able to finish. Maybe that's selfish. I just have these fantasies of us finishing and then like three <laughs> weeks later, <laughs> George Armand's like, surprise! <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to... We're so excited to tackle the ones of winter. I mean, just like all of you. So we're all going to be doing that together. But Feasting with Dragons... This Cersei chapter, this Victorian Greyjoy slash other partied Greyjoy chapters. I feel like for both of these characters, and it was George's original chronology in A Feast for Crows, but working well with how we're doing the read through on the podcast, Cersei, I feel like this was her sort of coming out moment, stepping out and and feeling it, right? You mean starting her destruction? She started it before, but this was this was just a it was playtime. She got to look side to side and visualize her council. You know, these are her counselors. Mm -hmm. This is where the plan's going to start from. And I felt the same sort of thematic underpinnings from Victorian's chapter. I think for for Cersei, you just pointed out it's it's really the laying of the groundwork for so many different things that are about to start in this series and including something that I completely forgot about is that she's trying to take out Jon Snow. I, I yeah. mean, I, mm-hmm. that completely slipped my mind because it's not as prevalent uh, in the show. And, and it's been a while, of course, since I've, since I've read these chapters and that would seem like it would be something that's not easy to forget, but I think for a lot of people it might be. Yeah. Well, and funnily enough, I felt like it was 
out of all these different things that we hear in the middle of this small council meeting, her one point that she actually gets right, which I think is interesting. I feel like this is the only or one of the only times in this chapter where she has this idea about something that's going on and actually knows what she's talking about and actually takes a course of action that maybe, I mean, the way she goes about it <laughs> isn't really the right way necessarily. I think that's interesting. Um <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that her misgivings about John and I think that her dislike for, yeah, it's it's great instincts for, for what's going on at the wall. I think that we would all probably disagree because we love Jon Snow, but I feel like she actually got this right compared to this other laundry list of things that she tends to ignore and isn't giving enough credit to throughout the rest of the chapter. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to pick on Cersei and a Feast for Crows because... You know, this is our first, this is our fourth chapter with her. Uh, our first three ones, she was dealing directly with the morning of losing Tywin. And she was trying to make moves. She was playing the game. She was preparing herself for power. She was making decisions that someone in power would be able to make. And I feel like we were all kind of difficult on her. I, I'm not, really, I'm not really sure how to put it, but she was doing stuff that we thought was, hmm. But you get her in the small council room. And when I was reading it, all I could think was that she's just this is this is this is Tywin Lannister's daughter. Like she's listening to the way that she's really? talking about. I, yeah, I just thought that the the strategies and how wide of a perspective she had on how all the different pieces of Westeros and even parts of the world work together was just beyond what everyone else in the room was thinking. Yeah, I mean, I could I will agree with you on that point specifically, especially if she's much smarter than everybody else in the room with her, and she obviously. She basically says, "Does did did that on purpose?" I mean, she right. wants to be surrounded by her yes men, yeah. but I just I feel like she couldn't be less of Tywin's offspring in this chapter, in my opinion, because I just feel like well, because of all the other stuff. Well, yeah, but everything we always say about her, I just feel like even when she's strategizing and whatever, I think that she just doesn't quite get it right. <laughs> she's thinking about pickling Tyrion's head the whole time. Yeah, you know? So, she's talking about Stannis and Dorne and dismissing the Iron Bank. Aside from her treatment of the situation at the Wall, everything else is kind of dismissing things out of hand or like not giving people enough credit and it's all going to come back to bite her. I just don't think she's paying enough attention because I think she doesn't like this stuff as much as she thinks she does. She has a clear agenda though in terms of how she sets up her small council and it's been mentioned just the fact that she's able to manipulate all of these people and they're not people who you would consider to be her equals, right? And to me, that's a problem because when you look at Tywin Lannister and Hannah, you were saying, like, think about the types of people that he placed on the small council, the things that he was trying to do. You're talking about really notable families with really strong lineages power families the people mm-hmm. on this council now are a bunch of lackwits yeah. like they're not anybody who you would really think is of any value they're all expendable at the end they're of the all day randos yeah they're complete randos Giles with, is say, <laughs> yeah. yeah one guy can't even keep his phlegm down Kyburn to me though is oh, yeah. <laughs> is the is the key because He's he may be more than her equal in my mind because he knows things. He knows people who knows know things. And, and he runs a candy corner. <laughs> he runs he a candy corner. <laughs> Listen, can we just take a moment out? Sure. Note. 
Kyburn is fresh. Highlight. I have informers sniffing after the imp everywhere, your grace, said Kyburn. He had garbed himself in something very like Maester's robes, but white instead of gray, immaculate as the cloaks of the king's guard. <laughs> Whorls of gold decorated his hem, sleeves, and stiff high collar, and a golden sash was tied about his waist. <laughs> it's Wheresoever so funny he because might run, my whispers will find him. It's funny because when I picture him, I guess I just... You know, sometimes mental images of the show just kind of supersede what you read in the books, fortunately or unfortunately. But I just always think of him as this like grimy, unwashed hair kind of guy. And he is described as basically everything but. Oh, yeah. And Pycelle is completely (sighs) taken aback. He's so affronted that this man would be allowed to be on the small council, never mind named a lord. Poor Pycelle. (laughs) I kind of feel bad for him a little bit. He's in this so chapter. Upset. I really don't. I can't help it. Kyburn steps at Pycelle in this chapter, though. He he turns to him and they're talking about the, the high Septon who's just passed away. They can hear the bells. He says, he was an old done man, your grace. Kyburn smiled at Pycelle. His passing should not have surprised us. Yeah. And, and just the way that her small council is described in this chapter as being uprooted every rose and all those beholden to her uncle and her brothers. So... She's completely dismantled the small council from what we've known it and put in that place men whose loyalty would be to her. And this is, it's hard to say because clearly we know how season six ends and she's riding high. She has the throne. But to me, this seems like as much a beginning as an end because I just can't see these people If she has no loyalty to them, I can't expect that they will have loyalty to her over the long term. And just having somebody like Kyburn in her corner, her candy corner, (laughs) and by the way, he's not the only one in her candy corner. No, he's not. Cough, kettle black, cough. Um, I don't know. It it just seems like very poor ruling on her part. Mm -hmm. And, And she's not very tactical. She's not very strategic for for the long term like she she clearly has a short-term plan that she's looking to enact here by putting all these people into place she wants to shame marjorie get her out of the picture but as far as ruling and there's there's parts in this chapter where you know she's talking with these men and kyburn throws in these different ideas we talked a little bit about Jon snow and how to get rid of him but i just it, it seems very risky to me the way that she's going about this. And, and I agree, Hannah, about this being really anti-Tywin. I don't think mm-hmm. this is at all how Tywin would have approached the situation. Something I've been, I was thinking about while reading this chapter is that I think that Cersei's idea of success and her idea of power is simply being at the top of the food chain. I don't think that she thinks about winning the game as anything but having the opportunity like she does now to just kind of lord over people and have everybody in her pocket like she thinks she does. When in reality, I think that someone like Tywin would think that being at the top would be an opportunity to create opportunities or like an opportunity to like handle situations while she just kind of rose there and that's it for her. So I think that that's where the major difference would lie. I think that her... Faint worked on me because the small council, you know, was full of dull faces that was lapping up everything that she said. And I guess that I did too. 
<laughs> reading the book, I and thinking about it now, I'm just well, okay. This is probably stuff that the Mace Tyrells of the world, and certainly Kevin Lannister, you know, would have been able to to speak with her hand and foot about uh, if they were the people that were in the small council, and they being the people that should be on the small council right now. And I know we talked about it in an episode before how Cersei's arc in A Feast for Crows is less about will she do something that turns her story into something that's less than what it should be. It's it's how. And we're seeing it right now in this chapter how, you know, the, the stirrings have led to people actually sitting in a room to them actually making strategies. The stuff with Jon Snow is, I think, something that it's it's tough to say how other people would have handled it, but it's a pretty deft plan if if they were able to pull it off you know it gets people worried about Jon Snow at this point if you're reading the books for the first time obviously they're not combined so you wouldn't have been able to to get Jon's perspective of exactly what's happening at the wall and Sam leaves quickly so we, we only really have hints of it from there so we're basically you know going through the fourth book with all the other plots that she has sort of keeping it in the back of our mind being a little bit worried that she might be sending Osney Kettleblack or someone else, you know, with a hundred men to take John mm-hmm. out. And also along those lines, Davos, we get a mention of him and she kind of basically says she doesn't really care what happens. Can't remember exactly, but letting him die essentially um, as he's up in White Harbor. He'll be replaced with the turnip knight. Yes. <laughs> yeah. LOL. And so that's another character that we don't have access to in A Feast for Crows. So we kind of get... Um, a little bit of information about on this chapter. For sure. it Definitely, if you're reading through it just in sort of the normal sequence of things, going through A Feast for Crows, you're worried for these characters because you, you don't know really what their fate is going to be because you're not able to see it yet from their perspective. Mm-hmm. So Not us. Not us. We're we, not worried about nothing. How did you guys feel about Cersei's sanity? At the beginning of the chapter, through the middle, and then at the end, because I feel like with the introduction of a leather sack full of dismembered heads, and then just a normal work meeting, and then to where her mind eventually went at the end of the chapter, thinking about having, if it was actually Tyrion's head, cast in bronze, and put into her chamber pot. I would say, though, that I feel like compared to her last couple of chapters, I feel like she was a little bit more together than we've seen her yet. I mean, and that's even to say, to your point, she's thinking about putting Tyrion's head on chamber pots. And that, in my opinion, is an upgrade from she thinks about him, what, two or three times in this chapter instead of five to nine. So I think that I felt like she, while making decisions that I don't agree with, or I don't think anyone really agrees with, is more sane or together. Kind of what you were saying at the beginning when we first started talking about this chapter, that she has it a little bit more together than we've seen her in a while, in my opinion. She thinks of Maggie the Frog. She thinks of Jamie. She thinks of Tyrion a good handful of times. She thinks of Catelyn, too. Yeah. She blames her for not taking care of Jon Snow. (laughs) (laughs) If only she could know. Only smothered him in his cradle or something to that effect. It's like reading from the perspective of Victarion, in a way. And I know that they're lined up, so it's easy to say that. But we like these characters. You guys like Cersei, right? Um, I like Cersei more than I like Viterion. I like Cersei in the sense of I really like her chapters because I find some almost like dark comedy to them. Mm -hmm. I think that she's an interesting character. I think she has interesting motivations. And so I do enjoy reading her chapters quite a bit. I think that, though, I'm not entirely sold on her being 
more sane in this chapter than she has been in the previous three. Or more sane than Victorian. Yeah, because she also ends the chapter thinking about Tyrion. So he's not completely gone from her mind. It, you know, the, the chapter is bookended with thoughts of Tyrion and, and of course, the d- decapitated dwarf, which she feels great that finally they uh, actually got themselves a dwarf as opposed to you know, child. some young child that they happen to yeah, take the head off up. of. That's what I'm saying. It's easy to get disarmed a little bit because she's wearing nice clothes and she's drinking wine. She's <laughs> having great conversations with Lady Tyna. And it's easy to look at what mm-hmm. Mr. Greyjoy does later in a ship or what any of those sorts of folks do as they're reaving. But I think I think about what's... It's just... I, I love the way that George is juxtaposing these situations because at the root of these characters are, you know, is a person, is a being. And then the choices that they make, uh, whether directly violent or violence through another or something that will lead to violence because of a decision, it's neat to see lied back to back to each other. One group of people are chanting or will be chanting for who should rise as the new king while business is happening in the small council chamber they're making decisions that are even greater right mm-hmm. she's definitely unhinged at times she keeps it together well during the small council meeting but even then there are moments where she will go off and and the, that moment with sansa when there was that awkward silence oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're like because they basically were thinking to themselves damn this woman better not fuck with her <laughs> right and she says after that it was enough to make her wonder why she bothered with the council because nobody said anything. Yeah, like exactly you're saying. What could what someone do you say? say to yeah, that? <laughs> like yeah. I think that Cersei could have found more people like Kyburn. I don't think there's anyone like Kyburn. Okay, there's nothing <laughs> that true. I think that she could have found people to play along with her in the right way. Like I think she could have found people who you're on Greyjoy. Yeah, who would have heard that her rant about Sansa and been like, yeah, like, let's kill her. You know, people who are crazy enough and almost to say smart enough to kind of go along the with... The brave companions. Yeah, like, wh- <laughs> I just, I think that she, in, like, we, this is just circling back, but she filled this room with yes men instead of people who are actually smart when I think she could have found people just as smart and just as crazy as her to help her mm-hmm. actually accomplish something. And if you think back to Game of Thrones, right... Think about the small council at that time and the types of people that were there when Robert was king, you know, even after John Aaron, right? And and when Ned comes to King's Landing, you have Renly, you have Stannis, you have Barristan Selmy, Baelish, Varys. Like, these are some serious players and yeah. it's still yet to be determined how Varys and Baelish factor into this endgame and and maybe it's good that those two are no longer there, but I'd also be seriously worried if I were Cersei that you have these two out there cooking up who knows what. I mean, she saves Baelish's ass in this chapter by telling the men of the Vale to essentially stand down against him, but he's out there. She knows how crafty he is. He was always able to find money when it was needed, and also Varys... I mean, that's a huge wild card that just who Out knows there. where mm-hmm. the guy is up to. And she tries to make herself feel better by saying, oh, Kyburn's just as good, which we all know can't be but true. But he's not. Yeah. Is he really? I, I don't think know. so. I'm I don't not think sure. he's trying to uh, bring about a Targaryen rebellion. <laughs> if that's really what he's up to. I, don't I think thought that's about that game. Yeah. I wouldn't want those guys not on my side or I wouldn't want them running around without 
knowing that they were somewhat loyal to I don't know. Never mind. Wait, there she is <laughs> just as loyal. complicit in Tyrion's escape as Jamie. Mm-hmm. So when you think about the feelings that she has towards Tyrion and what she wants to do, she has all these different, you know, criminal type people around all of Westeros, parts of Essos, trying to track down Tyrion, whether he comes back alive or comes back with his head off, she doesn't really care either way. And yet Varys helped free Tyrion. So I think throughout this entire chapter, and it's a long chapter for Cersei, actually, I think the biggest mistake that she makes outside of the members of her small council is her believing that the war is over. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah she Tywin literally says that, doesn't that. she? That only a blind man can fail to see our war is all but one. You'd think that she would want to then, if she truly believes that, surround herself with people that could protect her. I don't believe that these are the types of people that could ultimately, nor the families that could ultimately protect her. I mean, there's one point where she mentions the fact that she's essentially in a position of holding her own uncle hostage. She says that he's dumb enough, essentially, to realize that he's nothing more than a hostage because Kevin, he's Kevin's wife's father. So that right. keeps Kevin in her pocket. Yeah. So to me, that's not... She's playing inside baseball when there's a war to be fought still right. actively. And Tywin would always say that Lannister comes before anything else. So... Cersei should be loyal to her uncle before she's trying to play these types of games with him. I mean, but you look at the other members of the small council, right? Meriwether, Rosby, Waters, even Kyburn, the Especially Kyburn. They're not anything to write home about, right? These are not the names that inspire fear and make you think that they have what's in the best interests of the realm at heart. They only care about what Cersei has to tell them, and they'll do her bidding, and that's all she wants. This is what she wants, right? At the end of the day, she's got it, but I don't Mm -hmm. think that's an effective way for her to rule. George makes it pretty clear to us when we see her response. She shrugs off Grumpkin's snarks when the mention of the portmen in relation to ships headed to and fro from Mir, the rumors about dragons, that's literally left off and they don't go back to that point but cersei is ignoring the stuff that we know to be truths and to be important in this world and that's just a clear message to us to kind of just look at her and 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 see what she's doing you know not to believe in it but to just understand where she's going wrong with these decisions and then we get the the mention that there are now two thousand sparrows sparrows that we originally saw on the road have now made their way into King's Landing. My favorite part about all that is after the small council meeting when she basically pats herself on the back and thinks how clever she is and how amazing it is to be where she is and <laughs> just really congratulating her. And we've just gone through like all these things that she's not paying attention to enough attention to or aren't <laughs> handling correctly. And then she's just like lounging thinking, wow, I'm so good at my job. I mean, I guess if you think she deserves it. <laughs> she was going through a list of people that she's gotten rid of and, and the list of people that, you know, oh, father would be so proud. <laughs> it's just, it's so interesting to see us as a reader knowing, especially as people who've read the series or who are very well familiar with it, just the, her downfall 
And then to see that juxtapose with her thinking about how amazing she is, it's just, I can't help but laugh. It's fun to read. I mean, this chapter is really like a report card on the realm and, and what's going on in different places and insights into different things like the Iron Bank and the fact that she says, no, we're not going to pay them. They also have a saying in Bravos. The Iron Bank will have its due. Yeah, I like that. And, and Pycelle says it. And no one makes fun of him, so it's probably uh, mm-hmm. pretty serious. And and you mentioned before, too, the Golden Company. Cersei is wondering why they would even think about crossing. You know, And we know that Stannis obviously has been speaking with the Iron Bank and is looking to get them, looking to get the Golden Company in his employ to- Take down Ramsay Bolton. Take down Ramsay Bolton. So- there's little things here and there. I mean, we talked a little bit about the veil and the situation with Peter Baelish, um, but also I highlighted here too, as I was going through fake Aria mm-hmm. and the red wedding. I mean, people are supposedly claiming that they want somebody to take responsibility for what happened. And, and I can't help but think that, you know, it has a little bit to do with guest rights and, and the fact I think that so too. This was betrayed so blatantly uh, on the part of Walder Frey. And and I guess I didn't quite understand what they were looking to do. Were they looking for Walder to place blame on one of his like 500 kids that he has? Somewhat important. Yeah. So the repercussions to the North would be a little satiated, I think. Yeah. That's the impression that I got as well. Because they want the help of White Harbor, but without returning Lord Manderley's offspring, you know, if that's not possible or if he's in worse condition than they think, you know, it would help to have other things to, to bolster the confidence. Because like you said, guys, she thinks that the war is over. So this is just housekeeping. Right. She she thinks Stannis is literally the last piece that she needs to overcome that's of any real threat. And for all intents and purposes right now, that seems to be the case. But we all know that. There's there's more happening sort of behind the scenes, and the next chapter proves that. Mm-hmm. Cersei's fighting her own war at home. This part of the book uh, ended up being my favorite part of A Feast for Crows, and there's a there's a long list of really cool arcs, but it's something that I hadn't seen because the show doesn't adapt it whatsoever. The interesting caper that Cersei begins to build here in King's Landing with the Kettle Blacks, Sir Osney with Marjorie, with Lady Tyena, rumors and secrets and people getting blamed for things they might not have done. And it just ends up being a really interesting uh, little, not, I wouldn't say, it just ends up being a cool story, if that's just as bluntly as I can put it, with the High Sparrow getting involved and the Sparrows getting involved. I, I thought it was dark and gothic, and I thought that it, fit well in a in a book where she's burning the tower of the hand while she's kind of drunk in front of everyone and it it just sort of tells the story i think in a a much more grand and epic way the show did what it had to do obviously because there's screen time to think about but cersei's eventual demise into the cell as depicted in george's actual writing it's not getting set up here but the, the lies that she's twisting for the inner war that she's about to start fighting with Marjorie's really beginning now. Mm-hmm. It's just, you almost forget how much more complex it is than what we, what we just got to watch. Did you like that? Cause I thought it ended up being really cool. Yeah, I, I did. I thought that it's kind of a subplot and like you said, it it's an 
internal war within the inner circle of Cersei and her family. You know, she's she's playing master manipulator of this whole situation between Marjorie and Tommen, much like she's trying to do with her small council, much like she's trying to do with the realm. Mm-hmm. And I think she's very good at it. Absolutely. Like here, I would say she is very good. I would agree. At pulling strings. <laughs> I would totally agree, though. I think that in terms of playing the game, when it comes to making men do her bidding, even as crazy as it seems, she gets Osney Kettleblack to, well, he she convinces him to sleep with Marjorie. The king's wife. The king's wife. Go to the, be sent to the wall to kill Jon Snow. And then be pardoned and come back and she will be his and she believes it which i think is wild because how could this guy ever think that cersei could be his but i think that we have a couple moments in this chapter where we get mention of how good cersei is it at this part of the game she's really good at making especially the men around her just do her bidding because they've always looked at her a certain way and she mentions in the beginning how she how she used to wear Jamie's cloak because she could pretend to be him and people would treat her differently when they thought she was Jamie and how much she hated that. Um, and how she learned early on to use her womanly powers, I guess. Yeah. As, as a strength and also as something she resents a little bit, but as crazy as what she asks Osney to do is, I would say that more so than this grander (laughs) picture of the war, that's coming. This is the kind of stuff I really, really like to read about Cersei. And she just takes so much pleasure in it too, which I think is... She's had, she's so happy. Yeah. Like this is the kind of stuff that she can sit back and um, bask in her self about. You know what I mean? Like she can, she can take a little pride in the fact that she has the ability to manipulate people around her so easily. Or, I mean... Maybe she doesn't have everyone in, in her pocket as much as she thinks she does, um, but I think she's still pretty good at it. Meanwhile, she's thinking about shitting on her brother's head, casting bronze in her chamber pot. Yeah, all happening at the same time. <laughs> so, but she's okay. Cersei's doing all right. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can say. This episode of Game of Owns is sponsored by GlassesUSA.com. GlassesUSA.com is the leading online retailer for prescription glasses in the United States since 2009. Glasses USA cuts out the middleman, so prices can be up to 70% off the retail price. Plus, you can shop online from the comfort of your home without compromise on quality or service. GlassesUSA.com offers over 2,500 styles of eyeglasses and sunglasses, including designer frames like Ray-Ban, Oakley, Tom Ford, and Armani. Their lenses and coatings are the same high quality as retail, and the glasses are professionally produced at state-of-the-art laboratories. They also make multifocal lenses and accommodate high prescriptions. You can try on any pair of frames and see what they look like on your face by uploading your photo. At GlassesUSA.com, glasses start at only $48 with free prescription lenses. But for Game of Owns listeners, GlassesUSA.com is offering 55% off your first pair of frames, including free basic prescription lenses when you use the code GAME55 at checkout. Or if you go to glassesusa.com slash game. That's glassesusa.com slash game or offer code game55 at checkout. Some exclusions apply. So check out the site for full details. And thanks. We've talked a little bit about the Iron Islands in Cersei's chapter. And 
the small council mentions them a little bit, um, but again, kind of dismisses them. All the meanwhile, we have this king smooth that's about to happen. And I think that it's as good as the time as any for the Iron Islands to really get it together. Um, while in King's Landing, they're just not paying attention to it as a threat at all. And so I think it made this chapter all the more exciting to think that everything that's happening here in the Iron Islands could actually have a real impact on what's happening all the way in King's Landing if they seize the opportunity and do something about it. What did you guys think about the Iron Captain? Because I know we've been looking forward to it for a while. It's the introduction of a, a great character, another great character, as if there aren't plenty to choose from already. I just like the fact that you're immediately taken from King's Landing to a completely different location, and yet you think that you understand the world that has been created thus far by George R. R. Martin, uh, and you know, you get a really good sense of how many different areas Cersei is trying to influence in the last chapter, and then you're taken to this chapter, which focuses on Victorian Greyjoy, and you realize that there are so many different families that you've never even heard of before, but they have their own level of power and influence and importance within the Iron Islands. And it's just the world continuing to expand. And that's the first thing I took away from this chapter. The second thing that I thought was also interesting was you go from a chapter where you have Cersei, a female character who has really come into her own and and is exerting control and you see that a lot the desire the passion to rule from asha Greyjoy. there's no crowd pleasing here this is asha Greyjoy stepping into what is basically the iron fleet's party with cersei right we've seen over the course of now you know four plus books her ascent to power and what it took and you know she as we just talked about, was always looked upon more favorably and more respected when she was dressed up as Jamie as opposed to when she was dressed up as Cersei. And I feel like Asha gets a lot of that in this chapter as well, even from Victarion. Mostly from Victarion. She's trying to tell her, yeah, what her place is supposed to be. And it's very reminiscent of chapters that we read about Daenerys. Um, and, you know, it, it, we we were I think we're seeing a shift right um, in the ability and and you know I don't think it's unintentional on the part of Jar Jar R. Martin of of female characters ability to rule and and to be equal if not better than their male counterparts and that is you know we're seeing so many of these female characters go through these very real struggles and and Asha is no different in this chapter but I think that. In, unlike Cersei, I think Asha has a much better head on her shoulders in terms of political scheming. She can fight too, like she can and physically she can fight. fight. Yeah. <laughs> she can hang in all all senses. And I also really, this is semi different or semi off topic, but ties into everything. I really hate Victarion a lot. <laughs> um, so I really it's easy to hate him. I get more it. than you hate the crow's eye. No, the thing about crow's eye is he's such a good. A well-written character that you can't help but love and I feel fear the same everything way about, about him. Really, I just feel like he just like I don't know. He's he's a pirate. He's just not as good enough of a pirate when you, <laughs> in terms of his brother. So I just really don't like him. I think he's a different kind of pirate than his brother, though. And we'll learn more as we we read with him. But George gives us these rare looks into 
different kinds of characters were usually in the minds of noble people that are smart or young and, and are about to be smart or are courageous or are young and about to be courageous. But this guy is what you see is what you get. And what you'll eventually see is what you will eventually get. If you've read forward, yeah. to me, it's fun because I get to read from the perspective of a vicious pirate, but I get to understand where his motivations lie and why he makes certain decisions. And this is kind of just a, a just a dip in the water when it comes to what, the way his mind is working, because mm-hmm. for the first time in a, in, a, in a bit, they're they're kind of chilling out. I know that what's about to happen is is crazy. But yeah, this chapter is very much a ramp up to the next chapter. Yeah. For sure. I just, I don't like how this whole time, first he's talking about how he doesn't really want to sit the sea stone chair, but I guess I'll do it if that's what's being (laughs) asked of me. Well, at the same time, having these dreams of everyone shouting his name and killing his brother, um, and then also dismissing Asha as any real sense of a threat, which, I mean, I I can understand why he would. But and then also thinking about how he killed his wife. Yeah. So I just there's he just isn't good person. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't. (laughs) He doesn't command enough of a presence to for me to for me to be able to be in awe of how awful he is. Which who can who can command any sort of presence when you're in the same room as you're on Greyjoy? So much swag. So much definition. Swaggy. How many mm-hmm. times did Victorion say, "I have no luck with wives" in this chapter? A million. Yeah, George. He's and he then got he quite takes, a few offers. He well, has. and then he takes Asha's offer to be his hand, essentially, as some weird like thing about her becoming his wife. <laughs> yeah, and, and then he like, immediately well, gets sexual. Yeah, and it's like, okay, I get it. Like, and I know that on his mind is the need for a wife because in order to rule, you need a someone to bear children but i don't know that whole internal dialogue that he was having about his wife just i really didn't like it but it's clear that it's not all his fault because his brother played a part in him doing ultimately what he did i'm not saying that it's right i'm just saying that clearly his brother is an asshat and has no respect. <laughs> they have a rocky relationship. Yeah. Quite a rocky relationship. I mean, essentially, Euron Greyjoy is the reason why Victorian kills his wife. His third right. wife, by the way. Uh, he doesn't and, have luck with wives. You know, it's it's a very sad story, certainly. And it's kind of odd that Asha apolog- or, or says that she's sorry. She, she assumes that, you know, Euron is responsible for... Victorian's wife's death when in fact it's Victorian himself but due to the fact that Euron slept with her and got her pregnant right yep Victorian wants to kill Euron and Balin steps in and says no I will not have you know any kinslaying taking place here and and I wonder why I mean and it's the old ways they I, well, fear that yeah I, I get that but I mean why not pursue him further outside of the iron islands um it, or is it just like it, the, the sort of the pact extends beyond i'm not sure about that the impression i got is that victorian is while he's the iron captain he, he's also sort of a follower of his brothers okay mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like i had the I impression that. that he need that he needed a smarter person to lead him to tell him what to do the sluggishness of his mind sometimes well does him no favors and right this is, uh, you know, our first look at 
how things are going when they're about to have this king's moot. But uh, I feel like while we're supposed to fear and and understand and to also have some awe in our minds when it comes to him, think about the that badass war helm that he put on with the squid legs coming down like around his chin. He's the guy. You know, when when there's a fight, he's the one that that launches over the side of the ship on a rope onto the vessel that they're sailing and, you know, the leader charging in and hacking people to pieces violently. This is the guy. He's wild. He's crazy. He's like his brother. Euron Greyjoy is just as crazy. And seeing them have normal conversations, I was I was thinking about just how odd it was. The Iron Captain, here he is. This dude is crazy. Just having a side conversation, just walking with his niece, just talking about stuff just casually before the bloodshed begins. Well, and they're all just kind of hanging out. Yeah. Exactly. Before, even before he and, and Asha go and have the conversation, they're just kind of sitting around courting each other to vote for them. I feel that part of our feelings on Victorian, I don't, I don't know if everyone feels this way, but I think at some point when we start to learn about his history, we find out what kind of world has led him to become the kind of person that he is. There's a little bit of pity there for Victorian. And I think that small seeds of that were planted just when we saw, I mean, it had a dual purpose. One, it made Asha look really cool. But when she walks in and she's just like, What's up, Knuckle? You here for my Queen's moot? That's my yeah. favorite. It's just like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It digs in him, but also makes her, it, it, we don't take him as seriously because of it. No, and, and there's that familial relationship that the two of them share. And, and it seems like he can at least hold a conversation uh, with her. And I'm not saying that Crow's Eye couldn't do that. I feel like. I don't think he'd he want could. to. I don't. Th- yeah, exactly. I don't think he would make a point of going up and speaking to, I- at least respectfully to Asha, to Dampere, to all these others that are his blood. And you know, clearly, he has no respect for his family because he he either was directly responsible for Bell and Greyjoy's death, if you were to believe the show, or he hired somebody, uh, a faceless assassin, to do the <laughs> deed for him. So. And then uh, Asha is is spot on to point that out, mm-hmm. how coincidental it is that he should show up not long after the death of Balan Greyjoy. So that exchange that they have heated. Yes. <laughs> Gold. When she asks how his how her how Asha's mom is and Asha's like, um, pretty awful because some somebody killed my dad. So now she's a widow and he's just like, hmm. <laughs> He shrugs. He's like, interesting. It's his brother. You'd think he'd have a little bit more of a reaction. Yeah. This is going back to the first point I made about this chapter, though, is like kind of looking through it again now is just the families, right, of the Iron Islands and, and just how many of them there are and their level of importance to the overall game. And, and you know, I know we talked a lot in previous episodes about the Greyjoys being omitted and the fact that we didn't get the crow's eye until this past season. You can see why now. I mean, th- there's so much here. It's it's kind of like mm-hmm. the same thing with Dorne or the same thing with the Tyrells, right? It's just a lot. I think it's hard to see, especially your first dive into the series until you become more familiar. Because as I mentioned before, this is something I struggled with. It's hard to see how this fits into the bigger picture, why this matters. And I know we directly, I directly contradicted myself two seconds ago by saying this is a perfect time for something like this to be happening on the Iron Islands because King's Landing isn't paying attention. But you've got all of this history and you've got 
all these familial relations and all these different families and politics that are so far removed and so different from what's happening in King's Landing that we've spent three and a half books worrying about. It's really hard at this point as somebody who are casual readers or casual watchers of the show to care about this kind of stuff. And so while we're still waiting to see how this ends up playing into the final end game, I can completely understand why you would cut this out. It's my favorite stuff. It's great. But like as somebody, I mean, you know, the majority of the people who watch this television show, who don't read the books, who don't listen to podcasts about it, don't care. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's it's hard to make them care this far along in the story. Mm-hmm. It's another family's quest for power, though. I mean, ultimately, that's what it's. It's it's the internal struggle for for somebody else to throw their hat into the ring to try and cause more problems in in a land that has plenty of them to begin with. These chapters, this story, is my favorite in these last two books. I thought that the imagery is so starkly different than most of the rest of the series. I know that we get hints of other cultures when we go to places like Dorne or when we go to all of the conflicts that Danny's a part of in the East. And I, I feel like we got that. We got sort of a taste of that in these Greyjoy chapters, but it's Westeros and it's not too far offshore, but their world is vastly different. The way they treat each other while being similar in a lot of ways uh, is vastly different in the, the, the level of violence that they take out on a lot of this stuff and uh, they're really cool to read about and to learn about with Euron Greyjoy stepping up and clearly having an eye on the bigger picture for what's to come in Westeros. It's so fun to see it set up and see the embers start glowing and try to understand while reading these early chapters just where the, the maze, where the mystery is headed, like where this starting point is leading to because George R. R. Martin is, is pretty casual about this chapter this one this isn't even the king's moot we're still waiting for the king's moot this is these are conversations and and character references that are going to carry us into the later part of the series and i just i don't know it'd be cool if this part of the series was adapted i understand why they couldn't but we do have the books do you think there's kind of a, a jekyll and hyde to you're in Greyjoy? i mean just because of the eye what do you mean i don't know like I, we've never really seen him demonstrate multiple personalities but i just wonder if he has two sides to him or if he's just completely out of his mind all the time because he's got the one eye that clearly has a patch over it right but then he's got the smiling eye do you think that it hides something magical it could like the eye of a white walker maybe that doesn't make any sense (laughs) maybe what do you think about it well that that's what I'm trying to figure out is, is that supposed to be sort of his, the nicer side of his personality or is it supposed to be somewhat condescending? You know, his smiling eyes sort of, it has a evil type of feel to it, but at the same time, then what is underneath the patch, like, or the eye that used to be underneath the patch? Like I, I'm just struggling to figure this guy out a little bit. Basically your question is, are we getting a little bit of character imagery that's reflecting the way that he is, where he comes into a party like this, he struts in with all of his important friends and all of their cool threats and talks the way that he talks, but sort of leaves a teaser campaign that he knows more than everyone else when it comes to the greater mysteries. And Yeah, I mean, there's, there's look, there's a lot of mystery to this guy. I mean, he's been supposedly as far east as a shy and... 
seemingly every other ship on the open sea cowers in silence's presence. So to me, like I, there's a bit of mysticism about this guy. It's not just another character, another Greyjoy, another you know last name of a family that has been respected in the Seven Kingdoms. It's there's something up mm-hmm. in my mind with. And you read him. the Forsaken, so you're just like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, I think that you're right. Absolutely. I think that. Yes. <laughs> I think that we don't yet know what that is or understand what that means. But from what we do know about him, you're talking about his eye and the patch and even just the way he walks into a room and commands the presence of everyone. I think that this guy is the real deal, whatever that means. I think that there's, there's a lot that we have yet to discover and unpacked, which I think or unpack, which I think is why you like him more than Victoria. (laughs) Exactly. And I know that that's, you know, completely biased uh, as a reader, but I can't help it. I'm I'm more intrigued. I'm more intrigued by his smiling eye. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Victoria doesn't have that same swagger, like we were saying. So how can you be interested or enthralled at this point exactly in the story? Um, when a guy like Euron rolls in and everything goes silent. Let's read this exchange. Euron walks in. Crow's eye, Victorian says. King Crow's eye, brother. Euron smiled. His lips look very dark in the lamplight, bruised and blue. Hmm. We shall have no king but from the king's mood, the damp hair stood. No godless man. And this is where... Euron interrupts his brother, the prophet. May sit the sea stone chair, I, Euron glanced about the tent. As it happens, I have offset upon the sea stone chair of late. It raises no objections. His smiling eye was glittering. Who knows more of gods than I? Horse gods and fire gods, gods made of gold with gemstone eyes, gods carved of cedar wood, gods chiseled into mountains, gods of empty air. I know them all. I have seen their peoples garland them with flowers and shed the blood of goats and bulls and children in their names. And I have heard the prayers and have a hundred tongues. Cure with my withered leg. Make the maiden love me. Grant me a healthy son. Save me, succor me, make me wealthy. Protect me. Protect me from mine enemies. Protect me from the darkness. Protect me from the crabs inside my belly. From the horse lords, from the slavers, from the sellswords at my door. Protect me from the silence. He laughed. Godless? Why, Aaron, I'm the godliest man ever to raise sail. You serve one god, damp air, but I have served ten thousand. From Ib to Ashai, when men see my sails, they pray. <laughs> it reads like scripture. It, it does. does. <laughs> it really, really genuinely does. So, enter your own great joy. With an entrance like that. So good. So, so good. Love it. Thank you, George R. R. Martin. When so men see my sails, they pray. Yes. Yep. So he's a pirate, man. The silence. <laughs> His ship is called the silence. I was going to say, is it a ghost ship? It's a ghost ship. I don't know if it's invisible. <laughs> I can't confirm nor deny. <laughs> I've never been out as far never east seen as it he with has. My own eyes. But his <laughs> ship is mostly crewed by mutes. And mongrels and the damned. The sky rocks. Think about that for a second. No one on his crew speaks. Mm. Silence. Hannah, what you brought up before, though, you know, you don't necessarily like Victorian as a character. And yet his chapter isn't really 
all that much about him, right? It's about Crow's Eye. It's about Asha. He kind of plays like third fiddle in a way, even though it's his introduction. Right. There's other characters that stand out far more and who we learn far more about than Victarion. So I'm interested as to why. Like, Did George just feel a need to also give a perspective chapter from another brother you're saying you want a year on point of view chapter badly yeah that'd be I like do. getting a Bayless chapter i don't know if it's ever going to happen <laughs> or varus for the, yeah. if this is your own chapter though we wouldn't get we wouldn't have been able to feel as much as we did what it was like to be in that room while he's giving that speech that is true i'm glad that this was from somebody else's perspective and that's probably why i feel the way i do about victorian is because he's kind of very much takes the back seat in a chapter that's supposed to be his own. I feel like George wanted to overshadow Victorion with his older brother in this chapter. Well, even Asha says that to him at the end of the chapter. She says that no one's talking about them. No one's talking about anything that they've done. They they are talking about everything that Euron's done. Even things that Victorion himself either... I'm just going to read this part... They talk only of the crow's eye, the far places he has seen, the women he has raped and the men he's killed, the cities he has sacked, the way he burnt Lord Tywin's fleet in Lannisport. And Viterion's like, I burned the fleet. Like, that was something that I did. And Asha's like, well, it doesn't matter because it was his idea. So everything is just overshadowing everything. And he, even he himself killed his wife. And he slept with his wife. Yeah. So even Euron essentially killed Victorian's wife. And he said to his brother... The person whose wife he slept with, who's now dead, she came to me wet and willing. Exactly. So I guess that's probably a good point. Like like you're saying, Zach, the reason why this chapter is from Victorian's perspective is so we can really see how much he's overshadowed by Euron in literally every sense of the word. I'm really excited to see how their dynamic plays out. I'm excited for next chapter. This is one of those weeks where it's like, can we do three chapters in one time because it's hard not to it's hard not to want to immediately talk about uh the king's mood and the drowned man victorian is such a wild card that no matter how grand his brother is he may he may just be crazy enough to ruin his brother's plans that might be too hopeful i don't know we'll see i don't know i feel like this chapter is pretty easy to own and that we can all pick the same cliche thing i'm just gonna give my own for this chapter to the crow's eye and the allure that surrounds this character. There's a lot of mystique and unanswered questions and just the swag that we talked about earlier on in this chapter that he just, he commands a room and, or a beach or wherever tent there's somewhere close to the water. But also I've, I did find it interesting that his nickname is Crow's Eye and that this book is called A Feast for Crows, and it's really where he's introduced as a character. I'm not saying that you know he's going to be eating people all the way. Maybe he does. I don't know. But I just feel like he is a character to watch moving forward. Yes. Absolutely. I'm going to give my own to the guy at the Iron Fleet awesome party. First off, they threw a hell of a party. Everyone who was anyone was there. Asha showed up. Victorian was there. Euron Greyjoy even showed up for a little bit. I mean, this was the place to be on Oldwick. And I got to give my own to the guy who lost a bet and had to eat his own boot. 
Oh, yeah. That's hardcore. Just like in the middle of this party eating his own <laughs> he shoe. He had to eat his boot. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. At a Greyjoy kind of party, people eat their boots. So, mm-hmm. Do you think someone will do that at Con of Thrones? I hope so. Wow, I hope so. Honestly, that's all that I could ask for. <laughs> Otherwise, it would not have been Hannah, a success. you should give your own to the Red Eunuch. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why not? Yeah. Unfortunately, Micah, that's not what I'm going to give my own to. I'm going to give my own. I have two. One, the own of just a lot of this book, which is when they see my sails, they pray. It's too good to not say that it's an own. Um, I don't care. I don't care. Uh, and the next one that I want to give is something we already mentioned, but when Asha um, says, I am pleased to see you at my queen's moot. I thought that was really funny. So own to her. For Cersei, uh, I give my own to Cersei. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's when she's talking about John and um, Kyburn's plans to send well, what inevitably ends up being her sending Kettle Black to the wall at some point in the future. At least that's her plan. And she says during the small council meeting, that is just what we shall do. If this bastard boy is truly his father's son, he will not suspect a thing. Perhaps he will even thank me before the blade slides between his ribs. Oh, man. It's like, damn. Good one, Cersei. I've got to give it to George R. R. Martin for really what he did. In both of these chapters, but specifically the small council, he did it a lot at the party, but there's these small, bold, pretty upfront asides that are comedic and they're not like that in all of his chapters. You don't get a lot of that when you're walking down a country lane, but when you're in a small council meeting with Cersei, Kyburn, Pycelle, you know, stuff's, stuff's bound to happen. And so just the little, the little quips that he was putting in was was pretty damn funny. Like Lord Giles took that as an invitation to begin coughing again. That's good. That's a good one. And I'm going to give my own to one of those moments from the small council meeting. It's hard not to give your own to Cersei in this chapter because the whole thing is basically just her talking. But my own is to, again, another point we already brought up, which is Arianne Waters, who says one last thing and talks about sailors from the East speaking of dragons. And Cersei goes, and manicorns, no doubt, and bearded snarks. Cersei chuckled. Come back to me when you hear talk of dwarfs, my lord. Which is so great. And just, I feel like the perfect, this sums up her whole aesthetic <laughs> and like outlook on life so perfectly. So, own to... I mean, I can't really own her for thinking that way, but I'm about to. So, to Cersei for making me laugh, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. And with that, my favorite part of the whole episode, when we get to read everyone else's owns. So, first, um, we'll go to Alma Lidman Bring on Facebook. It says, Cersei own goes to Cersei for dismissing all the real threats and obsessing over perceived ones, for thinking her new counselors have any loyalty to her, and for, in the midst of the madness, throwing us a line about John. If this bastard boy is truly his father's son, dot, dot, dot. And then Iron Captain Owen goes to Asha, who is apparently the only one in all of the Iron Islands capable of thinking long term and of compromising. She'll even be the hand. It's true. You know, she doesn't want much. Travis Cole says anti owned to Cersei for thinking Varys is so easily replaceable. Thank you, Travis. <laughs> An example is when the small council is discussing Balin Greyjoy's potential male heirs, but I assume she'll be reminded many more times how hard it will be to replace the Master of Whisperers. 
his own for the Cersei chapter goes to Orion Waters. Not the cer- not the anti-own, but the actual. <laughs> yeah, right. Up. Got it. And his sarcastic, witty banter at the small council meeting. And for the Iron Captain chapter to Asha and how she roasts left-hand Lucas Cod oh, when yeah. he announces he's unwed. <laughs> Jeff Ross, the roast master, would have applauded her on those burns. Vicious. <laughs> I can't believe we didn't talk about that. Jerry in Laos, unloused on Twitter. Cersei Ohm to Daenerys Targaryen, laying waste to vast areas of Essos, but the nobility of Westeros know little of her doing. And their Iron Captain Own to the kinsling taboo. God's damn. I, for one, would love to see Kraken Bowl. Sorry. Hashtag Kraken Bowl between Victorian and the Crow's Eye. Same. Yeah, that'd be so good. I will buy three tickets. One for each of us? Yes. Next, we have Brienne of Tarth at Beauty Brienne, who says, giving Cersei an own for the giant hole she doesn't even know she's digging for herself. And also throwing one to Vic for taking Asha's offer to be hand and making it all incesty and weird. <laughs> also, we, true. we need to only call him Vic from now well, on. <laughs> in all my, I did the same thing in all my notes. I just typed out B-I-C. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Brianne. I appreciate that. Julie Harris Green at Inky Pages says Asha owns everyone with her quick wit before Euron blows that damn horn and hypnotizes them all. Hashtag spoilery. Um, she also has her Cersei own to Osney. Never let the little head do the thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal. At Black Eyed Lily on Twitter, Susan Cersei own goes to Cersei. Cersei owns Osney Kettleback with promises, lies, and Arbor Gold. Also for the Iron Captain, Euron Crow's Eye owns Damp Hair. Drown God and all from Ib to Ashai. When men see my cells, they pray. That was really good. No. Spell check on pray. <laughs> <laughs> um, next on Twitter, we have Claire Flesher who says, Lord Giles cough for sparing him to ever have to ans- answer a question and a vague own to Asha for fighting for what she deserves. And finally, Heathen Kings, Cersei own. Sorry, I just, I didn't read that the right way. But anyway. Do you need me to make it bigger? No, you're good. Um, <laughs> That's what she said. How are you, Cersei? <laughs> <laughs> or or Asha. They neither of them. See, that's the thing about both of them, guys. I feel like what'd you say, Mikey? You said like an Asha can fight. It's like, yeah, Asha can fight, and I'm pretty sure Asha could seduce everyone that Cersei can too, because it's not hard to seduce a guy. It's true. Oh yeah, she could probably have anybody she wants. That's what I'm saying. So she even anyway. seduces her own brother. Oh god. Anyway, Theon. Theo, Ethan, Theo, <laughs> <laughs> that Theo Greyjoy, you look out for him. Uh, and finally, Heathen King on Twitter, uh, Cersei thinks of Varys and his silver buying whispers, but we all know Kyburn's Candy Corner owns the whisperers. We Heck know. Yeah. It is true. We know. And own to Euron Crow's Eye for his speech on godliness. Your turn. From Ib to Ashai. When men see my sails, they pray, and silence follows. Another feast, another dance. You guys didn't disappoint with your owns. Thank you so much for following along with us and sending your favorite moments and owns, etc., our way as the read-through continues. We appreciate it a lot. And if you want to follow along with our read-through, you can check out afeastwithdragons.com where we have the whole reading order up. And next time we're going to be reading The Drowned Man and Davos 3 from A Dance of Dragons. So afeastwithdragons.com and catch up with us. Yep. And uh, 
if you want to get ahead of the game, you can send in your owns for those two chapters in a number of ways, much like you heard uh, just now for these two chapters we read today. You can tweet at us at Game of Owns, uh, scroll upon our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns, or shoot us an email at contact at Game of We've just finished episode three of Rewatch the Throne, Lord Snow, and I should have rewatched the show sooner. Not that we haven't rewatched the show before, but when you're recording it for a podcast, uh, it's just a little bit different. So check it out if you're interested. I totally agree. I rewatched. I rewatched the whole series in preparation for this last season, and I still forgot that I love the show. So <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, but it's great. So check it out. If you'd like to listen to Rewatch the Throne, it's our new show on Howl FM. All you have to do is go to rewatchthethrone.com and uh, use code OWNS, and you'll get a, a whole month of their service and all of their other shows just for free. Just check it out. Listen to our show. Speaking of iTunes and other podcasts, there is one more podcast to talk about on today's show, and that is Hannah's favorite. A Squad of Ice and Fire. Squad of Ice and Fire, which you can find over on patreon.com slash goo. We appreciate your support of the show. Thank you for supporting our show. If you're interested, there was a lot of pre-New Year's and some uh, post-New Year's uh, storylines that were set up and then resolved. Some of our bannermen have been enjoying that, so thank you. Last thing we need to mention, now that it's 2017, the year of our Lord is also the year of Con of Thrones. We did mention it in 2016, though. We did. We did, but now it's actually this year. Yeah. The the official, official countdown can begin. Um, June 30th to July 2nd, we're going to be in Nashville for Con of Thrones. Um, you can check out all the information at conofthrones.com. Um, we've had a couple guest announcements and tickets are on sale. So get on it because it's coming. We're going to be talking about Con of Thrones all through 2017. We're, we've been putting a lot of work into it. We're really excited to uh, for it to finally be here. I can't believe it's it's coming up so soon, though. It's season seven, Con of Thrones. Winds of Winter. Shared Destiny. 